Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show in which we discuss the changing worlds of fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. My name is Shreen Patek and I'm the managing editor of Glossy. This week, we have on the Glossy Podcast, Alexis Maybank, Guilt Group's first CEO and a co-founder, who just in April launched Project September, an app and website that features photos from Instagram and other sites so that you can shop directly from the pictures. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you for having me. So let's start. Let's start with your with your history and how it informed, um, I guess, your present. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Guilt experience and some of the hashtag learnings, as we like to call them, that that you've taken with you and how they've sort of changed and affected the way um, you launched Project September? Well, my hashtag learnings are plentiful coming out of Guilt. Uh, Guilt was a business I started with a a terrific co-founder, Alexandra Wilson, back in 2007 and had eight terrific years as it went from about our friends of friends, about 15,000 people to way over 10 million Mm -hmm. uh, over that course of 10 years. And so from learning how to connect with audiences, um, discover um, pockets of people online and and allow them to come closer to their hobbies um, has always been a passion of mine. Mm -hmm. So in the case of guilt, we really focus first on ourselves as a consumer and um, to build an experience, in this case, a shopping experience that very much reflected how we wanted to shop. And then it was sort of access to coveted uh, products that are typically going through friends of um, of sample sales, as they were called then and still here in New York, and find a way to bring that to a more national Mm -hmm. audience at scale. So... Then it was that immediacy of um, going to the site, being able to discover something new every day that you wanted to purchase. So um, no two days were ever alike on Guild. And that was a big learning that we are applying to uh, Product September, but how you can create online experiences that no two days are alike. Mm -hmm. Um, How every day you can kind of try to surprise and delight a customer in Mm -hmm. a new way. Um, It was certainly something that we embraced fully. Also, I love businesses that you can build that could never exist without the internet as a backbone. So with Project September and with Guilt, we're we're applying that. Guilt, we did over... 70% of our re- of our revenues in just 90 minutes a day. Well, I remember like the I remember the first time there was like Louboutins were on there and it's like the site crashed and like everybody freaked out and there was this whole I mean a lot of it had to do with just buzz around it which sort of translated and grew yes. exponentially. Yes, yes, yes. So that was a big part. Um, our growth was viral, mm-hmm. especially for the first five years of the business. Over 65% came in from a friend telling a friend about our site. And beyond that, we set up a business that began all its sales at 12 every day. So we had hundreds of thousands of customers coming through the virtual front doors right at the same second every day. So that's a business that could never exist without the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was fun. Um, it made for some very white knuckle days. As you <laughs> said, if you want to see engineers on the um, verge of tears, you know, host a Louboutin sale on your site at um, uh, 60% off. And that's, in fact, we had to coach them through that day how to get through it. But yes, connecting people at scale, connecting them closer to their passions, building a daily routine and a business that can can scale, even if from the very beginning, um, have the scale of Amazon, if, even if it's 90 minutes a day, how how to go through those types of growth cycles, learned a tremendous amount, um, 
there at Guild, um, actually even before that, a company called eBay is it scaled from zero to four years as well. And, and you know, many of the same things that we're thinking mm-hmm. about applying here at Project September. Well, those are, um, those are all really positive things. What were some of the things you learned in things that were failures or things that didn't go as planned that you're sort of resetting or able to, able to apply um, now, the, just failures? Well, some things you never get right, even if it, (laughs) we used to say some of our best days were also some of our most terrifying, because when we had those big shocks, the system where we double our user base overnight or our shopper base in this case, essentially everything would break Mm -hmm. because the business that you roll out the door with, um, first for 15,000 is never the business that you have that serves a million and then 5 million and 10. So everything is constantly breaking because not you didn't do it, not because you did it wrong, but you need to rethink the business that serves mm-hmm. that uh, customer base at every step. So um, instantaneously as um, we'd have these shocks to the system where our user base would double, we would have to then go and change every single purchase order we wrote because all, all of a sudden it was way off the mark. Right. And that was one of the things that a lot of, you know, people sort of commented on that it was sort of scale. And this happens, I think, with almost every industry, every company that once things start scaling in unexpected ways, Mm -hmm. people start rethinking where they started and realize that they just didn't didn't account for them, right? And, well, there's two things. Like first, you know, what is it due to your infrastructure? So like our logistics would literally all of a sudden we'd have to roll out an entire new approach to our logistics and, and um, our warehousing strategies. Or um, on the flip side, you know, when you're moving that quickly, you're having to make a lot of decisions. So how you're going to expand, how much to expand, how much to expand versus focus. And, and those are some of the things that certainly um, – we made mistakes with that guilt. You can never get it perfect, but in retrospect, um, that's always something that any fast growth business looks back on. Where did you expand correctly? Where did you expand too far, too aggressively? Because it's just a, you know, it's a question of how you're building the business for customers. Some things you get right and some things you guess and some things you just get wrong. Do you think, um, where do you think, I, I do want to talk about Project September because we've touched on a lot of things that I find interesting, but before that I want to talk a little bit about flash sale sites. Um, in general, sort of where do you think flash sale sites are moving? I mean, a lot has been written about the death of flash sales, sort of a different consumer that they were built for or a different type of industry they were built for. Um, where do you think, sort of the idea of sample sales but online can go from here well for one they've all are are getting consolidated (laughs) but two i think that it's just going to become more pervasive across the way businesses do business so um it was a whole new form of marketing when it came out, a whole new form of adding excitement and entertainment, in our case, the um, fashion and luxury space, but it was applied to many different industries. And my takeaway there is, well, people just learned that this is an exciting way for a consumer to engage with any brand. The fact that you can introduce new things day to day, the way that you can add urgency, immediacy, excitement to the purchase process, all that was entirely new. And what I see now as I take a step back is people are applying that day-to-day to how they do their business online mm-hmm. and trying to take that tactic because it is so engaging and it's a reason for the consumer to come in. And um, one mistake a lot of businesses make is every single day their site looks virtually the same. <laughs> their offering is virtually the same or you know, it swaps out only four to five times a year. So mm-hmm. that 
was a really new way in which we pushed the envelope with guilt and other flash sale businesses did in certain um, sectors. And I think people have just applied it to how they do business or call it e-commerce on online today because of the fact they know they have to change their lineup frequently, new content, Mm -hmm. new offering, connect with people, give them a, a reason to come charging back onto the site. And that wasn't really how it was thought of before. I think the other way, and in, in at least the case of guilt, was that we added a bit of intrigue to the way we showed products. Like they were on model, they were shot beautifully in the same techniques that a magazine would use, uh, sort of editorial techniques to show an entire look. And that whole approach where you're romancing the customer through com- content that mm-hmm. was predominantly visual was also a big investment we made, but also had a big impact. Prior to us coming out the door, everything was shot on a mannequin or laid flat, or I remember seeing sites that had conehead mannequins on them. I mean, it was just very different day and age. So just that expectation setting where you bring them in frequently, often it's exciting with a strong call to action, but then on the flip side, you know, it's really visually exciting for the customer too. They can imagine what they might look like going to mm-hmm. an event or how to change up um, a living room look with throw pillows or whatever it might be. Right. Well, I think the whole success, that's interesting because I think the success of retail sites like, you know, the mod cloths of the world or even the runway has sort of... It, it's focused on creating that community. So I think a lot of people go to rent the runway and then they see that, you know, the 15 other people who wore the things before them. Um, and they're able to again imagine it on themselves because they're seeing real people mm-hmm. in interesting places where it, Oh, they wore it to a wedding. Maybe I will too. Um, with mod cloth, it's a similar thing, except they're crowdsourcing it. Um, do you think that, do you think that that is, that's sort of the secret sauce? It is just a matter of being able to humanize that online retail experience that people are not being able to do right now? Uh, yes, partially. And that's why we're doing the business. We're doing Project September. It's a big reason behind it. Um, the, everyone knows that there is just, it, it, you see things, beauty, fashion, and it's so engaging. You know, half of it's well, let me, 100% has been retouched and it's still captivating, sure. but there's something really exciting and raw and unedited about all the consumer generated content mm-hmm. because you can find an individual who has your point of view or maybe even just your sizing and you can connect in a much more um, personal way with that uh, that that icon or that person or that friend it's so many different ways of looking at it but it, it almost humanizes and personalizes how you di- you know it take in information and style advice in a way that I hadn't seen before mm-hmm. um, emerge through, largely through Instagram and Pinterest and um, and now really who's pushing it ahead in a new way is um, Snapchat. I mm-hmm. mean, talk about you're on the front lines, you're in the person's, you're walking in their, in their right. footsteps and it's the most raw unedited out of any coverage and people love that. There's but see, the exciting. people like it. Do you, what, do they, what about the brands? Because aren't they worried that, that it's too raw and it's too unedited? I mean, it's not as, maybe not as pretty as, you know, they could have made it, right? If they retouch the hell out of it. Well, there's two approaches. You can um, try to fight the tide or you can just see how information is being shared. People are connecting with your brand and you can try to go to those conversations. And I think fighting against the tide of certain social media and uh, trends or how people are learning and discovering as consumers 
good luck. (laughs) I hate to be that raw and unedited, but um, the conversation takes place across the web in so many different ways. And you have to be there. You have to go to the consumer, you have to engage, um, and you have to be open to how people are connecting with you. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Let's talk about Project September. I think the idea of the visual is what um, what I find really interesting about it because it speaks to this larger effect we've seen on the industry of Instagram, um, mostly mostly just Instagram. Um, how how did sort of this come about, firstly? Like, what was the moment you said, all right, this is what, what needs to happen to move the industry forward? And what have you already learned? I mean, it hasn't been that long, but I want to hear about what you got wrong and what you got right. So first there were magazines, Um, and we all have had that experience of flipping through the glossy pages. You see something, you know, want to find out where to get it. It's not exactly easy, but it's so captivating that experience. Then that online, then blogs, and now the wave of, um, sharing on Instagram, Pinterest, uh, and others are just, it's unbelievable. And it's moved so dramatically into how people like me are discovering fashion, fashion trends, new products, um, and looks. And I love it. Um, and I wanted to personally have experience where I could flip through those virtual pages of social media, magazines, and the rest to learn, to discover, to, for entertainment's sake. Um, and so that's, Project September is that. It's pulling together creative from so many different channels, sort of the glossies, if you will, but also more importantly, from all those unique individuals across the web with a style point of view. Mm -hmm. People are sharing their own looks, um, things they love, capturing street styles. It's it's how so much information in the fashion space is getting um, passed around, Mm -hmm. how people are discovering and getting inspired to make purchases today. So I wanted to build a platform where the world's most heavily viewed images could mm-hmm. be shopped immediately. Where because that was the missing piece, that everyone was looking at these images, but there was really no mm-hmm. way to necessarily have a direct link to that conversion piece, right? Yeah, so on the shopper side, there was no immersive shopping experience, visual immersive shopping experience that existed where you just are interacting with photos to see um, uh, what it is that you wanted to purchase, discover immediately, and shop immediately. And on the creative side, um, lots of individuals are sharing and uh, ideas across millions of followers in some cases. However, the missing piece for them was how to translate that immediately into buying Mm -hmm. opportunities for their followers to connect their beautiful work directly to the place where you could buy and discover. Mm -hmm. And and then lastly, but not least, maybe start to earn a new source of income. We all want to be entrepreneurs. We all want to find ways to um, kind of build our own businesses and and many people in that sphere are doing that already so let's see if they could match their influence directly with purchasing opportunities let's talk about that sort of revenue sharing uh part of it um what were some of the hardest hardest parts of kind of putting those in place um because i think in some ways i mean the, the it's like taking affiliate links but then moving them to a new place um 
what worked with it? So when we got started, you know, we first focused on the sharing. Let's make the sharing really easy. You can upload anywhere you've already um, shared images across the web. You can pull them in from Instagram, for example, your your phone if it's on if it hasn't yet been shared. So let's just make that so it's really simple to p- post and upload. Um, and get that part right. Well, because it's hard to convince people to do yet one more thing already. Yeah, and um, and then on the other side, it has to be really easy to be able to find what is a sea of product and link it for sale. Mm-hmm. So that was a big challenge. And um, we've done actually a great job at it, but we still have the, a, a long way to go, as you can imagine. But when we um, tackled that challenge, like how could you try to prep for... Uh, making almost anything sellable. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, we'll start just in fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we approached many of the same um, brands that we worked with at Gilt. At Gilt, we partnered with thousands of brands, but we could also partner with e-commerce sites that we couldn't before, with department stores. So just um, looking across the top uh, kind of most coveted brands, and today on Project September, if you're posting content, you can link to um thousands upon thousands of brands, mm-hmm. hundreds upon hundreds of retailers. So most of the kind of high cont- contemporary um, uh, mainstream fashion to um, luxury uh, and high-end fashion, you can find those brands. Are most of those brands coming in through, um, through like you said, those e-commerce stores or are the brands themselves also signing on? We have both. Okay. We have both. So there's, um, and, and we haven't taken a position of where you link Mm-hmm. We put that all in the controls of our creators on the site. So people who are posting content can choose to link directly to matches mm-hmm. or they can choose to link directly to a brand like Millie. It's really up to them um, and too early to tell what the pattern is. But so to your question on challenges, how do we try to get the world of product into the back end of our site? And so we've done a great job on the fashion piece, um, but there's a lot more that we'd like to add, of course, especially in menswear and other talk as we expand. And then we've already organically seen some home product being posted, and that's a whole new world that we haven't even tackled yet. So a lot to do there. What about mobile specifically? I mean, people have been long talking about, yeah, conversions on mobile, not quite where we thought they'd be. Like we can't get people to actually press that final button. And there've been lots of sort of fixes that people try in different sort of ways. I mean, whether it's providing more service on mobile, you know, through maybe a Facebook messenger or getting people to chat to you. Um, what was, you know, where are we with sort of mobile shopping and why isn't it quite where the, where we thought we'd be <laughs> at least a couple of years well, ago? I mean, I remember I was writing about mobile conversions being low like three or four years ago and I'm still writing about it. <laughs> well, it's where the customer has gone. So you, the, the pocket is now, the, the store is now in your pocket, I mm-hmm. should say. And, um, that is important for everyone to know. And Gil, we saw this switch almost four years ago, where over 50% of our purchasing took place on a mobile device. Mm-hmm. So that it's there. But right. the things, to your point, that slow it down, um, you know, payments online, is, uh, payments on a mobile device is still really hard. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are trying to tackle it from Stripe to um, everyone. Mm-hmm. So we'll just see how that nets out. But that is still really hard. And uh, and then, like any experience, the fewer kind of clicks off to purchase, the better. And that's another area that we'd like to see get more advanced over time, just on Project September in particular. Our first uh, goal was to unlock 
that discovery process. So for you to find any person or any brand and any item, no matter where it was, whether or not we had in our database or not, first Mm -hmm. of all, and whether or not we could um, make that purchase happen within our app or whether you had to link out um, to a partner site. So as um, the industry gets more involved, as payments first get you know, maybe it's down to one or two players who are winning and we can all just adopt that technology. (laughs) Apple Pay is doing a pretty amazing job. So might end up being them. That streamlines so much. And that's where I think the biggest drop off is. And then after you solve that, then if we all can move to one platform in which we're freeing up our inventory feeds are um display so a lot of practices. this is like actual logistics and i think it just has to of, consolidate to one mm-hmm. or two players who are like winning mobile payments online but is the consolidation not happening because it's still so early days or is mm-hmm. there something else to it it's um well a lot of people are tackling it and a lot of people are building great technology and now they have to make sure that that technology is adopted across anyone who is trying to um, be in that area of mobile payments. So mm-hmm. th- some of the challenge often falls in, well, okay, so f- do I want to pay um, and reallocate my engineering team for six months to embed this one? What if that part player doesn't win? And then we have, so it's sometimes just an internal resource question. So they have to develop great technology that consumers can use. And mm-hmm. right now, um, there's nothing easier than on an iPhone just using your okay. finger to check out your your fin- your thumbprint. Um, so that's pretty amazing, but not everyone uses that, right? Yeah. So, or has that device. Um, but on the flip side, once it does sort of consolidate to one or two players, then people have to free up resources to and and invest to um, embed that in their right. practices, their platforms. I'm glad you brought up resources because I want to talk about you know building a company and building a culture. Um, and, and you earlier mentioned, you know, the hardest part, guilt, was kind of telling the engineers what to expect <laughs> when, when you try to put, you know, when you try to put certain brands on sale for 60% off. Um, what has it been like to create a culture that is, you know, I think you're equally a tech company, equally a fashion company. Um, and there's more and more of those. I mean, I hear, you know, pretty much anybody that's trying to change how, fashion and luxury work these days wants to say, well, we're a tech company. Um, and yet, you know, just, that means that culturally these companies really have to figure out who they are. Um, what have you guys done to create a culture of your own? Well, we were such a melting pot at Guilt and we continue to be a project September. So uh, one thing that New York is, is just incredible at is not just having the tech Um, capabilities that Silicon Valley has, but also they understand building a brand and image and um, the importance of connecting to consumers across so many touch points, service to actually the, how, how, how your experience is as you come across a a website or a mobile experience, a mobile device. And so if I think back to who we had at Guild, who we have now at Project September, we had as many, um, tech guys as we have and not enough tech gals but different (laughs) topic uh tech guys as we had um kind of vogue staffers as we had um visual designers and so trying to get all of those left and right brain people together in one room and to talk all the same language we certainly had our hilarious moments over the years uh, and very fun stories that we can tell later but um i think you just have to one um 
be more focused on on sort of the why, so mm-hmm. the values behind why you're building a business, how the work day that you want to have, the norms of how a team comes together, and then you work on the translation bits. So like how you have to talk to an engineer and what motivates <laughs> them versus how you talk to someone in a more of a branding right. or merchandising sphere. It's like a big translation game. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if everyone is oriented towards what you want to build and why, and that's a sufficiently big enough and exciting enough goal, um, that that's really important. Um, no matter what, though, in all um, cultures that I've been a part of or a part of forming, if you're dealing with a business that's tackling a new idea, there's nothing more important than instilling a sense of flexibility. Because okay. You never know what's going to come down the road next. You really don't. I mean, the amount of times we changed um, the the team internally at Guild because instead of servicing the 50,000 customers, we're actually servicing 3 million. You, know, you just have to constantly rethink how you do business. Um, you have pe- just changes in the business that you can never anticipate because of the fact you went out um, and thought your idea would would be like this, but actually end up being more like this. Mm-hmm. So you just that sense of flexibility is really important because roles change, size of company changes all the time, and what it is you're learning changes daily. The flexibility is an interesting thing because it, I think when you look at like fashion and the old guard of fashion, it's like flexibility is the last thing you think of, right? When you think of a lot of those brands that haven't changed for years and decades, and more hierarchy and then flex exactly, and, and internal bureaucracy is sort of what is what has often been pointed to is the reason why a lot of these brands haven't made the digital and e-commerce changes we were talking about earlier where they haven't sort of just embraced that tide um, and instead gone against it. That, how much of that is sort of some of, the, some of the reasons why a lot of brands are staying traditional and therefore being left behind? Well, I think that um, some of the things that they do really well is when they say, "Here's here is our brand, here's what we care about, here's its heritage and protecting that to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but b- where sometimes um, brands could benefit being more flexible or opening to open to testing is there's such a benefit of being a pioneer in some cases to show modernization or mm-hmm. how cutting edge you are in a new way. So keep that heritage whole, but start being more, um, more flexible with being the first on a platform or testing a new marketing channel. Mm-hmm. You can always pull it back really quickly. But, but it comes down to resources, doesn't it? Because a lot of times they're worried that, and what if they spend, you know, all their resources on, I don't know, Snapchat, and then turns out that Snapchat, I don't know, just shuts down. It won't, but yeah. It's that's always a risk with innovation. Some things work and some don't, but that's where you have to have the willingness to test. And mm-hmm. if you have those brand parameters and the heritage set in stone, you're going to know naturally where you to test more than mm-hmm. not test um, and how to do it. But yes, you have to build in that sense um, that you will test and some things will work and some really won't work, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Make sure that the things that work more often than not, (laughs) but have that willingness to test and and willingness to make mistakes um, is required if you're going to pioneer new concepts. How does the changing workforce have to do them? You've been involved with Girls Who Code for for a long time. I mean, sort of, you've mentioned tech gals. Mm -hmm. Um, How does changing the workplace inside one of those brands and organizations affect it? Um, Having younger people, having maybe more female engineers come into the building. Um, And fashion seems like the right place to have that confluence of fashion and tech um, might actually be the one thing that gets forces people to actually have to hire more women in tech um, and changes that that ratio quite a bit. Well, 
I think there, so on the fashion side, you see most of the young kind of talent coming in and they're like, okay, well, social media, you're 20, you understand it much better than I do. And mm-hmm. I'm the 50 year old CMO or whatever it might be. So you see a huge influx of young talent there. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, with engineering talent, um, it is just a big systemic challenge. Like uh, everyone's trying to get more. I don't know any company that says, no, we don't want more female engineering mm-hmm. talent. Everyone wants it. It doesn't right. matter what, even the gamers want it. Mm-hmm. So um, no matter what, everyone uh, is, it, it, I wouldn't say everyone, a lot of people recognize there's a dearth of female engineers. They realize that they want to um, amp their recruiting processes maybe to get more internally mm-hmm. because the more diverse a team, the better a team is, sure. no matter what type. Um, but a lot of the problem is that there's just not women graduating with a degree in computer wow. science. So Girls Who Code, who you reference, where mm-hmm. I'm chair of that organization, we go back to where the problem happens. And that's in high school when the majority of women who are interested in that line of, or that line of study are dropping out for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. No role models. They don't think it's cool enough. They're being chased out of the computer labs. Well, the or whatever cool enough <laughs> might be where the fashion part comes in. Suddenly they start thinking it's cool enough because fashion tech is a, is a real viable industry. Yeah. Now. So with it, we're approaching it by one, just teaching you what you need to know to be able to pass uh, CS 101 at a place like MIT mm-hmm. Two by putting in, you in front of a lot of mentors who are building incredible mm-hmm. businesses or solving world challenges with uh, the use of technology because every business now uses technology in one way or another Mm -hmm. and um, showing them what are the possibilities. So sort of education meets um, mentors and role models uh, as well as applications for what can be built to solve different challenges. Mm -hmm. And um, now we're on pace to have uh, tens of thousands of girls going into the college uh, systems and coming out into the workforce. So that's our goal is to teach a million girls to code and reach gender parity here here in the States. Um, yeah, big goal. Might take us a while to get there. I think but. it's a great goal. Um, we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, I do want to ask you about some of the myths of the fashion industry um, and what you think right now the biggest myth is when it comes to either in fashion or luxury or branding or tech or all of them. Um, which, which one do you think is just, just a lot of hype? Well, a fashion consumer is, it doesn't wear one price point. So I don't know if this really is a myth, but fashion today is in my mind, a person who can pull together a really unique style by mixing high and low. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might have their investment piece or pieces. Um, they might wear uh, Louis Vuitton, but they're also mixing in H&M and they're mixing in right. Zara. They're mixing in um, Target mm-hmm. and they're doing it with like, w- they're doing it with pride and and with uh, savvy and style. And that to me is uh, the new fashion consumer. It's about individual style and being pulled together across so many different price points. So then the myth is that a lot of brands don't necessarily either recognize that and assume that, oh, you're you're loyal, therefore you're only loyal to Chanel, and that's it. You're you're gonna wear Chanel head to toe. You're a Chanel it. consumer, but you're maybe not a Chanel girl who wears mm-hmm. Chanel head to toe any longer. Right. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much, Alexis, for being on the Glossy Podcast. And thanks to you for listening. We are available on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher. So if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and we'll see you next week. <laughs>